Would you join with me in prayer? Dear Lord, I thank you so much. I thank you for the opportunity to be here, and I thank you for the opportunity to open up your word. And I pray that you fill us with your spirit. Open your word up to us, even as we open ourselves up to your word. Work in us and change us. In Jesus' name, amen. Earlier this year, I found out something chilling, um, and I, I've been waiting to figure out the best time to share it with you guys. According to a recent survey, 7% of Americans believe that chocolate milk comes from brown cows. <laughs> That's not even a joke. That's, and I assumed when I read about this survey that they were surveying children. No, these are adults who should know better. 7% of the people, they interviewed thousands of people, 7% of them thought chocolate milk came from brown cows. And that's chilling. It should be chilling. I should have felt that this was a possibility because 48% of the people, even the ones who didn't think they came from brown cows, didn't know exactly where chocolate milk does come from. You take milk and you put chocolate in. Let's pray. I mean, seriously, stop and think about that. How can you not know this? Now, some of us would go, that's just ridiculous. Or maybe they were polling some very ignorant people. Well, yes. And actually, an amazing number of people couldn't find Canada on a map. It's, it's right up there. If you look at a map, it's, it's right there. But they didn't know. The fact is that most people don't care about the stuff they don't care about. It just out, gone. They don't care. Who was the 14th president? You learned it once. But you didn't care to, to remember it. So you just gone. We're really only prepared to care about the things that immediately matter to us and really only prepared to believe the things that we are emotionally and personally prepared to believe. That's what we do. And that's oftentimes based on nonsense. It's based on nothing that makes any sense at all. But that's what we believe. This is helpful. This is important. I have to do this. I have to make sure I touch this corner every time within five minutes or else something bad happens. Based on nonsense. But that's what my brain might say. Maybe your brain says something different. I've got to wear this particular Cub shirt so that the Cubs win today. I've got to do it this specific way. I've got to do this. We are prepared to believe only what we are emotionally and personally prepared to believe. We believe that somehow brown cows have something to do with brown milk. We, we think that somehow believing in angels and miracles and stuff, yeah, we believe in that because it makes us feel good to believe in that. Not because we, we think logically that we believe in that, but because it makes us feel good to believe that. We believe in God and Jesus and the Bible and all that kind of stuff because we grew up in a church or because our parents grew up in a church. But if that's the case, then if you were living in Iraq, you should be Muslim. If you're living in India, you should be Hindu, right? No. If you're living in India, you should be Christian because there's only one name under heaven by which we can, must be saved. There's only one way, truth, and life. Not just because I grew up in Illinois 
or I grew up in a church. It should be. It has to be just as true in India as it is in America, isn't it? It has to be. So if my faith is based on only what I'm familiar with, I'm doing this wrong. If my faith is only based on what my parents believe, I'm doing this wrong. It needs to be based on what I know about God, what I personally know about God, what I, what I believe based on thinking that God's truth is the capital T truth. You have to know and believe. If, if this is nothing but a familiar fairy tale, then you don't have faith. You just have a connectedness because you're hanging out near God, reaping the benefits of handing, being vaguely near God. And when the rubber hits the road, if, if the Bible is only familiar and comfortable fables, then it's not going to change how you interact with the world around you. It's not going to change how you perceive things. It's not going to change your priorities. You're going to do what comes naturally. And the Bible is maybe something you believe in just because it makes you feel good instead of because you think it's a, a roadmap, a GPS that tells you what you should be doing. So like if I, if I quote the angel talking to Mary saying nothing is impossible to God, do you say, yeah, that's a warm, fuzzy part of the Christmas story that always makes me feel good inside? Do you find yourself having a Sunday answer where you go, yes, I believe that. Yes, that's great. Or is that a Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, capital T truth that changes how you view your life every day? Whatever you face every day, say nothing is impossible with God, which means that either God will do a miracle here or he will choose not to, and either way I can thank him because I know he's on it. Is that what you hear when you hear nothing is impossible with God? You go, yep, I need to live like that every single day. Because if it was ever true, then by definition it has to always be true that nothing is impossible with God. I, I go into all this because I'm afraid that as we get to this point in the book of Joshua where I talk about the fall of Jericho, I don't want you to think, what an interesting fairy tale. I don't want you to think, oh yeah, I'm familiar with that flannel graph Sunday school class. I don't want you to go... Yeah, okay, whatever. Or even, yes, that is historical fact. That's the way God did things back then. When I tell you about the fall of Jericho, I want you to believe that it is capital T true that nothing is impossible with God. There is no impossible. All there is is what God allows, what God brings about, what God chooses there is no impossible. And if that is true, shouldn't that consciously, actively change everything that we do? Should you be reaching out to that person? Well, she's shut me down every time. Oh, well then give up. Oh wait, or nothing is impossible with God. Maybe it's worth trying. Should I pray for healing? Sure. Oh, so God will automatically heal? No, but he might. And he may very well. And nothing is impossible with God. I've seen amazing things. I just don't know if I can deal with this relationship. I don't know if I can live with him or her. Really? Is it based on you? If I remember correctly, nothing is impossible with God. 
this miracle working power, this changes everything power, I mean, it, we see this all over the place. Haven't we seen this already in Joshua? And not just among the Israelites. We're told that in Joshua, by the way, open up your Bibles if you haven't already to Joshua, but in Joshua chapter 5, when all the, the Amorite kings west of the Jordan, all the Canaanite kings along the coast heard about how the Lord, and remember that's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's the name Yahweh. And in this case, i got to bring this out because in this part of the story, it's all about which God we're honoring, which God we're fearing. So when all these kings heard about how Yahweh had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until we had crossed over, not just some Canaanite storm god, not just some Egyptian god of war, not one of our familiar gods here in Canaan. No, 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 no. This is the guy who calls himself the God who is. The I actually am God. God. That God that we are living in terror of already, that we've spent an, a generation being afraid of hearing about Yahweh. When we heard that Yahweh helped the Israelites, well, he's, he says their hearts melted. They no longer had the courage to face the Israelites, which means this is the perfect time for the Israelites to pick up their bronze weapons, cross over into, into uh, Jericho and take the city, yes? Because the, the people of the city were melting in terror. Wouldn't that have been a good time to do that? Yes? No? So God says, okay, make flint knives. Set down your bronze weapons and make flint knives, brittle but crazy sharp, and circumcise the Israelites again. Which is just so not what I would have done just not what I would have done. It's just not good military theory. It's just not wise. Don't do that. And yet, as we discussed last week, they're not really the ones fighting the battle, are they? We go, well, don't, don't we want to make sure that all of our fighting men are fighting prepared? But they're not actually ones fighting. Isn't God going ahead of them and fighting the battles? Isn't that what we've been told repeatedly already in this story? God's going to be doing the heavy lifting. It is far less important that they are focused on being physically battle-ready than it is on them focusing on, are you in right relationship with God? Because you spent a generation being in wrong relationship. Are you guys in right relationship? I can't help but cross-apply Sunday school. We focus so much on this and looking at this part of our lives. And we go, right, you realize that's just a small part of the picture. And in fact, the least important part of the picture, this is so much more important but we spend so much time focused on this physical preparation. And God says, but are you walking with me? That's the crucial thing. Since I'm the one fighting and I'm always battle ready, just walk with me. That's the crucial bit. On a day-to-day basis, do you live like that? Like there's all the stuff you need to do with your business. There's all the stuff you need to do with your finances. There's all the stuff you need to do at work. There's all the stuff you need to do for school. There's all the stuff that you need to do. Do you live like Important though all that is, it pales beside, am I focusing on the Lord? Am I starting with my relationship with God? Am I starting with that every day? Am I putting everything else in the context of that? Because me being with God, my family walking with God, us growing closer to God, that's the crucial bit. Again, is that a Sunday morning truth where you nod in the pew? Or is that that something where every day you go, yeah, you're right, this is what I need to focus on. We're told in chapter 6, verse 1, now Jericho is tightly shut up because of the Israelites. Nobody went out. Nobody came in because they were scared. 
He spent 40 years being scared of these guys. Now they're on their doorstep. They're melting with fear. Then Yahweh said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands. I have already done it. I have delivered it in your hands along with its king and its fighting men. Booyah! Has anything changed yet? Situation changed? Is, is God telling him that? Is, is Joshua standing inside a defeated Jericho with his foot on the neck of the Jericho king? Is he? I'm pretty sure he's still standing outside the most heavily fortified city in the ancient world with big, thick, stinking walls that has been around for a couple of thousand years by the time Joshua showed up. I'm pretty sure nothing has changed. Can you, can you thank God? Can you let anxiety go and thank God before he has demonstrably done anything? Paul seemed to think that when he was writing to the Philippians. Can't, can't you do that? Thank God before he seems to have done anything? God promised Joshua, and his promise is better and more trustworthy than the most clear and accurate report of a victory after a battle. Here, this is exactly what happened in the battle. I'm like, do you trust that? It could theoretically be an error. Is God's promise ever an error? No. So God saying this hasn't happened yet, but you can depend on it, is more dependable than the most accurate sounding depiction of a battle that happened afterwards. All you have to do is be strong and courageous and obey everything God tells you. Just do that. And victory is assured. As long as you walk in faith, you could be as messed up as Rahab and you're still going to be blessed. They just needed to get your their us figured out. Because when it comes down to it, the real problems in life are not the storms or the thick walls or the pitfalls. Those are just the details of life. The problems in life is the us part. How are we responding to those things? Because the world is going to be broken. Every time you turn around, there's something else that's going to break. If you say, my problems in life are that there's broken things, then all you will ever see is a broken life with all sorts of pain and problems. And I think you're not going to enjoy yourself very much. But if we can rejoice in all things, I'll say it again. Rejoice. Well, that seems ridiculous if this is all I see. But it's wise if I see the whole big picture the way God's looking at it. What you choose to look at changes your perceptions. What you perceive changes your paradigm. Your paradigm changes how you live, which then changes what you choose to look at. Just honor God. Be strong and courageous. Do what he tells you to do. There is no impossible. So what is God's battle plans? He says, march around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Uh-huh. Okay. All right. I'm witches. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. Okay. All right. Yeah. And on the seventh day. Okay. Yeah. March around the city seven times. All right. With the priests blowing the trumpets. Uh-huh. Okay. And when you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets. Uh-huh. Have all the people give a loud shout. All right. And then the wall of the city is just going to fall down and the people are going to you know, go up everyone straight in. Did I, did I miss a detail in there somewhere? We're marching around the city blowing horns. Yes. 
Seventh day, we do that seven times. Yes. And we blow a loud horn. Yes. And then the walls just fall down. Yeah. We, we, didn't, we didn't do anything really different, and we didn't do anything that makes walls fall down. Yep, so go for it. Notice that God doesn't seem to feel like he needs to give you any more details than that. Blow your horns, then the walls are going to fall down. Really? Good luck. He doesn't seem to think that he needs to do that. But then again, did he seem to feel like he needed to do that when they parted the waters of the Jordan? Because I seem to remember last week him saying, step into the floodwaters, and they will be raging floodwaters when you step in. Yes? With the ark. So you're going to get harammed if you drop the ark, right? Obliterated. Step in. But the moment your foot hits the water, there's no water there. Instead, there's dust. Not even just smushy ground. Dust. But you're going to have to step out into the water first. Nothing looks different. The only thing that changes is how much faith you actually have. Do you believe that there is no impossible? And if God is telling you to do something, do it. God says that's the wise move, because when they did it, it worked, didn't it? So I would assume if you're Joshua, the wise move is to believe this without any more details, isn't it? I mean, me being me, I would be asking more details. But it's not foolish to believe it. It's wise. You just watched it happen. With the Jordan, it's wise to believe this. But think about how odd this would look. Think about how odd this would look to the people of Jericho, how odd this would feel to the Israelites. But think about being in Jericho and watching this. The armed guard in, 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 verse, in verse 9, the armed guard marched ahead of the priests who blew the trumpets. The rear guard followed the ark all the time the trumpets are sounding. That's going to catch your attention as guards, isn't it? 40,000 people marching around, full battle dress, trumpets blowing. Jericho's not that big a city. I mean, the entire thing could get walled off. You could probably hear these trumpets around the entire city. Everybody's hearing this going, what on earth? But Joshua commanded the people, and I love this, don't give a war cry, don't raise your voices, don't say a word till the day I tell you to shout. Then shout. So this is... This is all day, because it takes a while to march around the city. You get these ram's horns blowing and no other sound other than the jangle of armor and, and shields and swords. You hear this movement of marching, but not a word. And you hear trumpets blowing, but nobody's saying anything. That's going to leave an impression. So he had the Ark of the Covenant carried around the city, circling it once. And then the people returned to the camp and spent the night there. Yep, they're there for the rest of the night. That was, that, was, that was your day. That was Monday. So is this like a show of strength? Is that what it is? Because, I mean, it would mess with people. Do the people of Jericho think, ah, the next day they're going to attack? I'm terrified. They just want to show us. They've got 40,000 guys. And they're preparing. The next day we're all scared. So Joshua got up early the next morning and the priest took out the Ark of Yahweh and the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets went forward and marching before the Ark of Yahweh and blowing the trumpets and the armed men went ahead of them and the rear guard followed the Ark and the trumpets kept sounding and on the second day they marched around the city once then returned to the camp. Yep, that was Tuesday. That's it. So they're, they're 
They're not attacking him. Two days in a row. Actually, this, they did, we're told they did this for six days. The people of Jericho had to think this is just nuts. Now, I'm sure there were some people that were getting increasingly scared. I mean, just, there's a threat, and the threat just keeps being there, and it keeps not going away. You ever get more scared the longer the threat just keeps looming? The situation hasn't changed, but you're more scared because of how you're perceiving the looming threat? It's the opposite of the situation hasn't changed, but you trust God. It's the situation hasn't changed, but you keep thinking more and more about it, so you get more stressed. So I'm sure there were some people in Jericho that are getting more and more stressed, but I've got to think there are other people in Jericho going, is this all they're planning to do? I mean, it's been a week. Is this really it? This is all they're doing? They're going to trumpet us to death? So some of the people are probably stressing out to the max. Other people are starting to let their guard down. Both sets of people are less prepared for an attack. Right? The people who are uber stressed and the people are like, they ain't doing nothing. So maybe this is just brilliant military tactics. Maybe this is like psychological warfare. Is that what this is? This is all about psychological warfare? I don't think that's what this is about. I think it is a show of strength, but it's not a show of strength of the army. The army ain't doing nothing. They're just marching. This is a show of strength of their faith in Yahweh. And reminding the people of Jericho that they already know who this Yahweh is. He's bigger than Baal. He's bigger than Osiris. He's bigger than Ra. He's bigger than Marduk. He's bigger than the other gods that they've heard of. This is the God that they've been afraid of for a generation. They've heard of Yahweh. And these people are carrying Yahweh's ark in front of them. And they're trusting every day in him. So on that seventh day, they got up at daybreak. They marched around the city seven times in the same manner. And yes, I find myself getting a little bored. I'm like, yeah, yeah, get to the story. This is the story. It's like they've done this six times, and now they're doing it seven times. They keep going around, and they keep going around, and they keep going around, and they keep going around. This time, the people in Jericho have to be freaking out, because this is a difference, right? They did it once, and then they go to the camp six times over. But now, they're they're... They won't stop doing this over and over and over. Except on that day, they circled the city seven times, blowing their horns, and the seventh time around, the priest sounded the trumpet blast, this really long blast. Joshua commanded the people, shout, for Yahweh has given you the city. Yay! Wait. Has the situation changed? Has anything changed? They've done the same thing that they've been doing other than the shout. Has anything changed? They're still on the outside of the most heavily fortified city in the ancient world, aren't they? How can you say that Yahweh's given them the city? Because there is no impossible, right? And God said that he would give them the city, and he said that the walls would come down. He said that they should get ready to go, and when he shouts the walls would come down, he said that. And Joshua said, why would I not have faith in the God who has been completely faithful up to this point? Remind me what faith is from Hebrews. Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is being sure of what you hope for and certain of what you don't even see yet, right? It's not going, okay, that's hope, that's not faith. Faith is, okay, he said this is what's going to happen. It is as certain to me as if it had already happened. So he's already given us the city. There is no impossible. I'm going to live like that even today. 
going to be absolutely certain that we're really honestly following God because I want to make sure that I am on the right side of there is no impossible. So Joshua 6, verse 17, the city and all that's in it are to be devoted to the Lord, he says. Devote everything to Yahweh. That's the same root word as the haram that we talked about last week. This utter devotion, this utter, utter destruction. The word really has more of a sense of the utterness, the completeness, than it does the destructiveness. The word haram, harem, is talking about this stuff should be utterly removed from the planet. It does not belong here anymore. It belongs to God, it belongs to the flames, but it doesn't belong to you. Don't touch it, harem it. Get rid of this stuff. So the city and all that is in it is to be haremed to Yahweh, he says. Destroy or dedicate every single part of it. Nothing is cut by us. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house should be spared because she hid the spies that we sent. And this isn't a raiding party where we get stuff. This isn't a place to get the spoils of war. This is God giving the land back to the people who, who it belonged to before. This is their promised land. This is the ultimate Control-Z do-over. Don't keep the stuff. Don't keep their stuff. You're not conquering the city. You're taking back your land. So remember Rahab the prostitute. She hid the spies and she's putting this scarlet cord on her window, this crimson blood red color that's going to help the wrath of God to pass over her household. Remember we were just told that they just celebrated the Passover in the plains outside of Jericho right before this. They're like, we just remembered that that there was blood over our doorpost and the wrath of God passed over us. And like the next day, he's like, okay, next week. Remember Rahab, scarlet cord over her window. Don't kill her. Somebody somewhere had to go, I like Passover. Yes. Spare Rahab so she can be saved. Saved by this blood red covering. Saved to be brought into the people of God. Embrace her as your sister. There is no impossible. Even somebody like Rahab can be saved. But keep away from all the haremed things so that you won't bring about your own haramage. That's what it says in the, in the Bible. You bring about your own haramage by taking any of them. Otherwise, you're going to make the camp of Israel liable to being harem themselves and bring trouble on it. How clear is God being? No touchy harem thing. Or you get haramed and you don't want that. You harem everybody else. So stop it. No touchy. Makes total sense. All the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred, set apart to Yahweh. They have to go into the treasury. Do that. Obey God. Don't touch any of the stuff. It's not for you. Destroy everything else. Can you be more clear? Why would they ever do anything else? Because humans are by definition yahoos who tend to be drawn to shiny things. We make bad decisions. We don't think through things other than the moment of what we see sitting right in front of us because we believe what we are primarily emotionally and personally prepared to believe. I don't know. Maybe because they they believe the story. They believe in God's leading, but only up to a certain point because in the real world, as much as this wonderful sermon is landing on fertile soil in your heads, and you're like, oh, this makes so much sense. On Tuesday, when you would have to abandon some of God's priorities to get the thing that, quite frankly, you deserve, and you could totally get it if you just don't do it quite the way God would tell you to do it, but it makes total sense to do it your way, would you do it your way or God's way? I'd like to think, you'd like to think, you'd do it God's way. I can get what I want by yelling. Maybe. 
Is that what God wants you to do? Well, no, but... Surely that's not the case, though, here. They're not going to do that. They're not going to do that. Nobody's going to screw this up. It's been handed to them on a silver platter. And hadn't they, back in chapter 1, remember a couple weeks ago, the people had said, just as we fully obeyed Moses, we're going to obey you, Joshua. Only may Yahweh your God be with you as he was with Moses. And I love this. Whoever rebels against your word, it doesn't obey your words, whatever you may command them will be put to death. That's what we promise. I don't have to worry about these guys. They called capital punishment down on themselves if anybody doesn't obey Joshua, right? So we're good, right? Okay, good, good. Then let's not worry about it. So over here, when the trumpet sounded, the people shouted, the sound of the trumpet, and when the people gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. And I love that. It's another fun word because it's not just crumbled. It fell flat like a land in a cupboard. It's nothing. It's exactly And every man charged straight in. They took the city just like God had told them, just like he had promised them. And yes, I've got to think pretty much everyone in Jericho was completely unprepared for that. Really did not think that was an option. Wait, so our wall was a balloon? And they just popped it and went, walls don't do that. The Israelites devoted the city to Yahweh, destroyed with the sword every living thing in it. Everyone? Actually, we're told in, uh, in, in verse 22, actually, Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, no, go to the prostitute's house, bring her out, and all who belong to her in accordance with your oath to her. So they didn't forget Rahab. They'd done what the, what, uh, the, uh, the young men who had, had done the spying went in and brought out Rahab, her father, her mother, her brothers, all who belonged to her. And they brought out the entire family and they put them in a place outside the camp of Israel. Not because they were being jerks, but because they weren't part of the people of Israel yet. They were still foreigners. They weren't part of the family yet. But we know they became part of the family. They actually converted, if you want to look at it that way. They became part of the people of God because we're told from Matthew's genealogy that Rahab was the mother of Boaz. Boaz was the father of Obed, and then Jesse, and then David, and ultimately Jesus. Rahab was in Jesus' family line, right? So this is part of the great do-over. And this is the first part of that, of the first time that we're finally in the promised land and doing it right, and we have saved the first person to come back and be part of the people of God. And through her, ultimately, the whole world gets an ultimate do-over, right? Broken people, forgiven, and brought into the people of God. That's awesome. Because nothing is impossible with God, right? There is no impossible. It's all part of this huge rededication of God. God's people in the land that God has given them. And they burned the whole city and everything in it. And they put the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and the iron into the treasury of Yahweh's house, just like they were supposed to. And at that time, Joshua pronounced this solemn oath. Cursed before Yahweh is the man who undertakes to even rebuild the city of Jericho. Because the whole place is haremd. This isn't our place. It's not our stuff. Yes, Bethel then comes along in 1 Kings and goes, we'll rebuild it. There's always someone. So Yahweh was with Joshua and his fame spread throughout the land just as God promised. And they lived happily ever. 
What's the first word of the next verse? But, oh, why you got to do that? Why there got to be something after and they lived happily ever after? Why you got to have a but there? Why Who's going to screw this up? Especially when everything is working, if they just be strong and courageous and obey everything God tells them. I don't know, maybe it's because people are inherently yahoos and we're drawn to shiny things because we only think of the moment and we don't think about the repercussions of things because we always find a justification because we only believe what we're emotionally and personally prepared to believe because when the rubber hits the road, sometimes this is a story instead of truth. This is a nice fable that tells us things like Aesop tried to do, but it's not GPS. It's not etched into our DNA. Beloved, etch it into your, G- into your DNA. Wake up every morning. Open up your Bibles. Read God's Word. Pray. Hear God's voice. Spend every day thinking about how do I live this day in a way that actually honors God, that actually helps me to be an embassy for His kingdom every day. And you can't say, well, it's just a broken world. No, because we're broken with it. As Christians, we've been called to do a great do-over within that broken world. We can't just, yeah. Paul makes a whole thing in Romans about how there's no good reason why we should ever sin again. If we sin, it's because it's out of habit. Out of the mistaken impression that we should be dragging the corpse of our old nature with us into the promised land. Don't do that. Don't do that. Etch this into your DNA. With God, nothing is impossible. Without God, everything falls apart. Inevitably. This has to change our lives. It has to change our daily lives. Or else, like Aachen, you're just somebody who is enjoying the benefits of being near God, but not actually walking with God. And we don't want to be that. Remind me what the people just promised should happen to anybody who disagrees and disobeys what Joshua says, what God says. The people themselves said, here's what we think should happen to anybody who does that. They should be put to death. So last, next week, let me talk about Aachen. But this week, we're talking about Joshua. Without God, everything falls apart. But with God, there is no impossible. And that's what we should be focused on. There's only what God allows, what God brings about, what God encourages, what God empowers, what God directs. So be on the right side of that. Let that change every day. Every day. Because otherwise, I don't want to go there. That's for me and my house. I want to do this. I want to do it right. Amen? Help me do that. I'll help you do that. Would you pray with me? Dear Lord, I thank you so much. I thank you that you you give us indications in Scripture over and over of times where you have said, believe me, believe me. Even when everything in you would tell you to sin or everything in you would tell you to distrust, everything in you would tell you to sit in your chair and do nothing, believe me. So I pray, Lord, help us to believe you and to live like people who believe you. I pray that you help us to glorify you as ambassadors of your kingdom. Work in us and change us and help us to be helping one another to change and be ambassadors. We give this to you and pray that you help us to trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.